Chapter Four of the Harbor. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Harbor by Ernest Poole. Chapter Four. Then Sue began to take me in hand. From the subdued and weary girl that I had found when I came home, in the last few weeks she had blossomed out. The color had come into her cheeks, a new animation into her voice, a resolute brightness into her eyes. "'This thing has got to stop, Billy,' she said determinately. "'This house has been like a tomb for months. You and Dad are so gloomy and tired, your sights. He needs a change, and so do you. You're getting into a little rut and throwing away your chance to write. You need friends who are writers. You need a lot of fresh ideas to tone you up. There's plenty of money in writing, and I need a change myself. I can't stand this house any longer. After all, I've got my own life to live. I'm going to get a job before long. In the meantime, I'm going to see my friends, and what's more, I'm going to have them up here to the house, just as often as they'll come. Let's brighten things up a little. I looked at her with interest. Here was another sister of mine, risen out of her sorrow and eager to live, and talking of running our lives as well, of curing us both by large firm doses of fresh ideas, while she herself looked around for a job that would help her to live her own life. "'Look here, Sue,' I argued vaguely. "'You don't want to take a job. I certainly do. But you can't. Dad won't hear to it. He'll have to when I've found it. No poor feeble old man supporting me, thank you, quite probably no man at all, ever. But you needn't worry. I won't take any old job that comes along, and I won't bother Dad till I've found just what I really want, something I can grow in. That's right. Take it easy, I said. Where have you been? I thought as I watched her. It came over me as a distinct surprise that Sue had been in all sorts of places and had been making all sorts of friends, had been having ambitions and dreams of her own, all the time I had been having mine. Most older brothers, I suppose, at some time or another have felt this same bewilderment. "'Look here, sis,' they wonder gravely, "'where in thunder have you been?' I took a keen interest in her now. In the evenings, when I wasn't out working, we had long talks about our lives, which to my satisfaction became almost entirely talks about her life, her needs, her growth, her delight in herself, her intensity over plans for herself, her enthusiasm for all the new movements, reforms, and ideas that she had heard of God knows where and felt she must gather into herself to expand herself. It was wonderful. She was like that chap from Detroit, that would-be perfect all-round man. But Sue was so much less solemn about it, one minute in art and the next in social settlements, so little hampered by ever putting through what she planned. In short, a woman, I thought sagely. I felt I knew a lot about women, although I had had no more intimate talks since that affair in Paris. I had felt that would last me for quite a while, but here was something perfectly safe. A sister, decent but far from dull, well stocked with all the feminine points, and only too glad to be confidential. She wanted to study for the stage. Of course that was the kind of thing that Dad and I would stop darn quick. Still, I could see Sue on the stage. She was not at all like me. 
I was middling small, with a square jaw, snub nose, and sandy hair. Sue was tall and easy-moving, with an abundance of soft brown hair worn low over large and irregular features. She had fascinating eyes. She could sprawl on a rug or a sofa as lazy and indolent as you please, all but her eyes. They were always doing something or other, letting this out or keeping that back, practicing on me. Oh, yes, she'll marry soon enough, I thought. This talk of a job for life is a joke. Some nights I would listen to her for hours. It was so good to come back to life, to feel younger than my worries, to forget for a little while that stark heavy certainty that poor old dad would soon be a burden in spite of himself, and that with the family on my hands I'd have to spend the best years of my life slaving for a little hay. I took the same delight in her friends. Starting with her classmates in a Brooklyn high school, most of whom were working over in New York, Sue had followed in their trail, and at settlements in studios and in girl bachelor flats she had picked up an amazing assortment of friends. Radicals, they called themselves. Nothing was too wild or new for these friends of Sue's to jump into, and what was more, to tie themselves to by a regular job in some queer irregular office. Votes for Women was just starting up, and one of this group, a stenographer in a suffragette office, had been in the first small parade. Another, a stout florid youth who wrote poems for magazines, had paraded bravely in her wake. Here were two girls who lived in a tenement, did their own cooking, and pushed east-side investigations that they said would soon shake up the town. There were several rising muckrakers, too, some of whom did free work on the side for socialist papers. There was one real socialist, a painter, who had a red membership card in his pocket to prove that he belonged to the party. Others were spreading music and art and dramatics through the tenements, new music, new art, and new dramatics. One young husband and his wife, intensely in love with one another, were working together night and day for easier divorces which would put an end to the old-fashioned home. These people seemed to me to be laughing at a different old thing every time. But when they weren't laughing they were scowling over some new attack upon life, and when they did that they were laughable. At least so they were to me. Not that I minded attacking things, I had done plenty of that myself in Paris, but how different we had been back there. We too had thrown old creeds to the winds, but with how much more finesse and art. And there had been a large remoteness about it. Each one had tossed his faraway country into the cosmopolitan pot. Our talk had been on a worldwide scale. But this crude crowd, except for an occasional mental flights, kept all its attention, its laughs, and its jeers, its attacks and exposures centered on this one mammoth town, against which as a background they seemed the merest pygmies. Three little muckrakers loomed against Wall Street, one small scoffing suffragette against a hundred and eighty thousand solid stolid Brooklyn wives. They had posed themselves so absurdly close to the world of things as they are. And they were in such a rush about their work, over there in Paris, with all our smashing of idols, we had at least held fast to our one great goddess of art. We had slaved like dogs at the hard daily labor of honestly learning our various crafts. But here they stopped for nothing at all. 
The magazine writers were tearing off copy, the painters were simply slapping it down. One of them told me he painted the real stuff right out of life, dashed it off with one hand, so to speak, while he shook his fist at the town with the other. Everyone wanted to see something done, and done damn quick, about this, that, or the other. My artist eyes surveyed this group and twinkled with amused surprise, but I could sit by the hour and listen to their talk. I found it mighty refreshing, after those bills in the hardware shop, that monotonous martyr feeling of mine, and those worries down by the harbor. But I felt the harbor always there, slowly closing in on my father, who looked older day by day, slowly bringing things to a crisis. In the garden behind our house on warm September evenings when these pygmies gathered to chatter reforms, the harbor hooted at their little plans as it had hooted at my own. One evening, I remember, when the talk had waxed hot and loud in favor of labor unions and strike, Sue left the group and with a friend strolled to the lower end of the garden. There I saw them peer over the edge and listen to the drunken stokers singing in the barrooms deep under all these flower-beds and all this adventurous chatter of ours. I thought of the years I had spent with Sam, and Sue, too, seemed to me to be having a spree. Poor kid, what a jolt she would get some day. She called me our dreamer imported from France, but I was far from dreaming. Presently the harbor just opened one of its big eyes and sent up by a messenger a little grim reality. A Russian revolutionist had appeared among us with a letter to Sue from Joe Kramer. Joe, I found to my surprise, had seen quite a little of Sue over here while I had been in Paris, and from the various ships and hotels that had been his home of late he had written her now and then. Through him Sue had joined a society known as the Friends of Russian Freedom, and Joe wrote now from Moscow urging her to stir up the crowd and lick this fellow into shape to talk at big meetings and raise some cash. He has the real goods, Joe added. All he needs is the English language and a few points about making it yellow. If handled right, he'll be a scream. He was handled right, and he was a scream. Three months later he finished a tour that had netted over ten thousand dollars now to buy guns and ship them to Russia, where, in the awful poverty bequeathed to them by the war with Japan, a bitter people was still fighting hard to make an end of autocracy. "'I think I can help you, puss,' said Dad. I looked at him with interest. I knew he had been as tickled as I by these astonishing friends of hers. Revoluters, he called them. He was a great favorite with the girls. "'I once knew a man in a business way who dealt in guns,' he explained to Sue. He shipped some to Bolivia from my dock. I'll have him up to meet your friend. So this messenger from the harbor, a keen, lean man of business, gave one hour of his time to the problem in which the Russian dreamer had been absorbed for fifteen years, and the hour made the fifteen years look decidedly dreamy. "'Guns for Russia, eh?' he said. "'How'll you get them into your country? Where's your frontier weakest? You don't know. Then I'll tell you.' and the man of business did. Now, what kind of guns do you want? You hadn't thought. Well, my friend, you want Mausers. They happen to be cheap just now in Vienna. You should have looked into that before you traipsed way over here. You can get them there for three-twenty apiece. They dropped three cents last Tuesday. 
The dreamer dreamed hard and fast for a moment. Then he cried triumphantly, "'With ten thousand dollars I can buy over three thousand guns?' The gunman's look was patient. "'Don't you want to shoot em off?' he inquired. "'Because if you do you'll need ammunition. You ought to have a thousand rounds which will come to a little over three times the actual cost of the guns themselves. You see, when you shoot off a gun at an army you want to have plenty of cartridges or else be ready to run like hell.' On second thought, he added, I advise you to give up the Mausers and go in for Springfields over here, old ones, you can get them cheap. They're no good at over a mile, but for the first few months your fellows will be lucky if they hit a man at a hundred yards. And there's one good point about Springfields, they make a devil of a noise, and that's all you need for a starter, noise enough to break into headlines all over the world as a brave little rebel army. If you can do that and the word goes around on the quiet that you're using American rifles, well, there's a kind of sentiment in our trade. You'll find us all behind you. We'll even lose money. We're a queer bunch. But wait, cried the Russian. There is a trouble. Your treaty with Russia. Have you not a treaty which makes it forbidden to sell to me guns? Again that look of patience. Yes, General, we have a treaty but we'll ship your guns as grand pianos to Naples, from there by slow boat to Brazil, and then up to the Baltic where they'll arrive with their pedigrees lost. Our agent will be there ahead, he'll have found a custom-house man he can fix, he'll cable us where, and when those fifty pianos are landed the said official will open the box marked twenty-two. It'll take him over an hour to do it, the boards will be nailed so cussedly tight, and he'll find a real piano inside." Then he'll look at the other forty-nine crates and say, Oh, hell, in Russian. Then they'll go on to wherever you want them, and you'll revolute. And don't forget that what you need most is the livest press agent you can find. I've got to go now. Think it over, and if you want to do business with me, come to my office tomorrow at ten. The man of business left us, and while the dreamer talked like mad and finally decided that as Mausers were shoot farther guns, he had better go to Vienna. I watched the twinkle in Dad's gray eyes and thought of the cool contempt in his friends. And from being amused I became rather sore, for after all this little Russian cuss had risked his life for fifteen years and expected to lose it shortly. As a matter of fact he was stood up against the wall and shot the following April. Why make him look so small? Was there nothing under the heavens that this infernal harbor didn't know all about and do business with so thoroughly that it could always smile? End of chapter four. Recording by Tom Weiss.